If you have your Bibles, uh, open them with me, if you would, to the book of Daniel. Uh, after a week hiatus, uh, we return this morning to our study in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10. You can follow along in the insert that you find in your bulletin as well. If you're a visitor with us, we're glad that you're here. And as we turn to the 10th chapter of the book of Daniel, we uh, begin our 10th week in our study of this Old Testament book, a book that has taught us and reminded us of much, but the overarching theme of the book of Daniel has been God is sovereign over history and over the nations. And as we come to chapter 10 here this morning, in this part of the book we are in, you'll remember from two weeks ago, those of you who are here, we are in the midst of a series of dreams and visions that the Lord has given Daniel. Visions not just about the future of the people of Israel, though there is some of that, but visions about the restoration of all things, visions beyond what Daniel could see, to the restoration of all things in Jesus. Daniel could not see with that much clarity in his vision, but we have the benefit of looking back and marveling and seeing this grand story of redemption that God has unfolded before His people for generations upon generations. Well, today, chapter 10, we begin with the last vision of the book of Daniel, and this is kind of the home stretch for our study, chapters 10, 11, and 12. This vision that we begin today will encompass the rest of the book, but today we really don't even get into the heart of what Daniel sees. We talk primarily about how this vision is delivered to Daniel. And so as I read it this morning, I invite you, if you're able, to stand out of honor of God's Word. Daniel chapter 10, we're going to read through, I'm going to read through uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Listen as I read. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves." So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. 
And then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up, trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have, pe- I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me, 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what it is to, hap- what, what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground, and I was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, and then I opened my mouth and I spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not." Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And he spoke to me. I was strengthened and he said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. And then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except against these except Michael your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I want to begin this morning by talking with you about the flu. I suspect many of you are tired of hearing about the flu, and I'm certain that some of you are tired of having the flu. It's been going around as Many of you know some form of the virus made its way through our home last month. I know it's the case for many of you. This season is one of the worst flu seasons in our country in recent memory, they say. According to the CDC, 
more than 17,000 people have been hospitalized this flu season. And dozens upon dozens have unfortunately died. It seems Hawaii is the only state that is not hit with the epidemic in our country. Just another reason to go to Hawaii. The problem is you have to travel in a, uh, in a Petri dish tube called an airplane in order to get to Hawaii. Here's the thing, and here's why I bring up the flu. If we could only see the flu virus like we could see an oncoming car, wouldn't that be nice? Someone's talking to you and you just kind of move out of the way. They sneeze and you kind of duck. There are microscopic images of the flu. Kind of looks like a planet with cool knobs all over it. But of course, the flu virus, you kids know this from your science class, the flu virus, you can't see it. It's unseen by the human naked eye. It's an unseen enemy that wreaks havoc on our lives when it attacks. See, that one sentence describes one of the realities that is at the heart of this passage this morning. One of the realities that I think that we in the church and we as followers of Jesus need to be constantly reminded of, particularly in this post-enlightenment, rational, modern, technological, scientifically exalted world. This morning I want to center and build our thoughts around one central truth, and it's this. Prayer on earth connects with cosmic conflict. Prayer on earth connects with cosmic conflict. Now, if you think you can just rest, kids, and don't take any more notes, no, we got three subpoints coming up. So that's the one point, but we have some more organization ahead of us. The Lord gives Daniel and the Lord gives us in this passage, Daniel chapter 10. What I think is a gift. We already know that Daniel is a man of prayer. We have seen that. We have already seen supernatural, amazing, powerful answers to prayer. Think about lions. But here, the curtain is peeled back and the direct connection to what is going on behind the scenes is revealed for us, if only for a glimpse. So while I want that one statement, prayer on earth connects with cosmic conflict, I want that to be what you walk out of here with this morning. I also want to draw your attention under that one truth to three things as we walk through this passage. And here are the three things. I'll give them to you ahead of time. The heart of Daniel the unseen power struggle, and the friendship of God. The heart of Daniel, the unseen power struggle, and the friendship of God. First, the heart of Daniel. Before we get into what prayer does, I want to focus on why Daniel's praying. 
on what leads him to pray. I mean, what is going on exactly with Daniel in this passage? He's described in some distress. He's described as mourning. And he's been mourning for three solid weeks. It's a mourning that has included prayer. It's a mourning that's included fasting from the good things of the land, the sweets, the drinks, the good meat, the comforting lotion and oil in this dry climate. Daniel has put it all aside. And we ask, why? What is going on? Well, the short answer is for his people. Daniel is mourning for his people. The year is 536 B.C. The Medo-Persian Empire has toppled Babylon. Cyrus has already decreed that the Israelites could begin returning to the land of promise, which they begin to do, but Daniel has stayed behind. Perhaps he was too old to make the journey. He's probably about 85 years old now. Perhaps he was needed He was vital to the service of the king. He had served long in that empire and in its proceeding. Whatever the reason, here we find Daniel mourning, distressed on the banks of the river, on the banks of the Tigris. Remember, Daniel had absorbed a lot over the years. These These recent visions that we have looked at over the past several weeks, these have been not easy for Daniel to digest. The restoration, the timeline for restoration of God's people was much, much further out than Daniel had even anticipated. That was part of it, I suspect. And now part of his kin have returned to their homeland, but the reports that he is receiving are simply not good. The people of Israel are struggling. And those of you who have been here for a long time, we we saw this years ago when we studied the book of Nehemiah. It's been a long time since Israel has been in the land of promise. People have moved in. It's not so easy to rebuild. Ezra 4 Verse 4 sums it up well. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia. And Daniel is trying to understand this. Lord, the restoration is so much further than I thought. And now restoration is on our doorstep, and, and, and yet the, the people of God are struggling. And so he cries out to the Lord, what is the story that is being played out here? What is your purpose, God? What is your plan in all of this? See, Daniel is burdened for his people. So he fasts. He fasts to to heighten his spiritual awareness, but he fasts also to identify with his people. And I love this. I love this about Daniel. This is something that the New Testament speaks for all of us. We've been talking about spiritual gifts. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, after fleshing out the spiritual gifts, he says in verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. Hebrews 13, 3, a verse that I remind us of of often, says, remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. 
since you also are in the body. So Daniel is, he's burdened for his people. And out of this need, out of this despair flowing from his heart, he prays. And and what he prays, we don't exactly know. But he's about to be reminded that his prayer on earth has not only been heard, but it has connected with a cosmic conflict bigger than he could have imagined. And that's the second sub-point, is the unseen power struggle. Daniel prays and his pleas result in the appearance of a man, a man that terrifies him. Now, we all know that our dress communicates something that we're about, whether it be a lab coat, whether it be camouflage. This man is clothed in linen, as, as the priests would have been, a sign of being set apart, a sign of purity, as a belt of fine gold. But more than that, he is emanating light, he's emanating strength, he's emanating authority. And Daniel doesn't know how to describe what he sees. Face like lightning, arms and legs like bronze, flaming eyes, and a voice like a crowd's roar, and he's undone. This being that Daniel sees is obviously from another realm, and some think like the fourth man in the furnace that we studied weeks and weeks ago, that that it's Christ, that it's a pre-incarnate Christ. I think there's good evidence that it's simply an angel of God radiating the glory of God. Either way, this appearance is the beginning of the answer to Daniel's prayer for answers. The Lord has heard His words, and the Lord is responding with immediacy And yet here we are 21 days later. It's been three weeks. In the last chapter, Gabriel showed up while Daniel was still praying. So what happened? What happened is cosmic oppositions. And one of the most fascinating accounts in this book, maybe in the entirety of scriptures, we learn that this angelic being was fighting to make his way to Daniel. Only when one of the chief princes, our text says, only when Michael himself jumps in the fray is this angelic being able to break through enemy lines. See, apparently it had gotten out The word had gotten out in the spiritual realm that that Yahweh was responding to the pleas of one of his servants, namely Daniel. And so Yahweh sent a host to give that word from the Lord to Daniel. And as we will see in the opening verses of chapter 11 next week, it was word of Persia's demise. Now perhaps this enemy of the Lord and of his people This prince of Persia, as our text calls him, thought that preventing this word from going to Daniel could somehow alter the course of history. But as we see here, the word's delayed, but the word cannot be altered. Now, this text 
This story, this account brings up all sorts of questions. Questions that that we simply can't answer entirely this morning. This sermon is your little spiritual warfare class teaser, because in the discipleship hour, that's where we're headed next in the last semester of our year. But real briefly, some take this passage and they make all kinds of inferences on very little information in the text. And so there's a danger here of taking Daniel chapter 10 and making too much out of what really isn't clear or what obviously isn't revealed to us in a way that we ought to be fixated on, that we ought to be fascinated about. But there's also a danger on the other side. In light of what isn't entirely clear, we simply ignore it altogether. So we can't understand that, so we're just not even going to go there. And both errors are incorrect. So let me say a few things about this occurrence in particular. Three things. These are your three sub-sub points. Number one, you have a spiritual enemy. Sure, we've read about this. We've talked about this. I've talked about this from this pulpit. We read in 1 Peter chapter 5 that the devil prowls around us like a roaring lion. But, But here in this text, there is a vividness in time and space. And in response to prayer that we simply don't get elsewhere. And I think it's helpful for keeping spiritual realities before us. Many of you are familiar that in the 1940s, the English author C.S. Lewis wrote a series of articles in a publication, a British publication called The Guardian. The articles were a series of fictitious letters written from an uncle, Uncle Screwtape, to his nephew Wormwood, and they caused quite a stir. I've shared some of these letters and some of these uh, snippets of these letters because they weren't actual letters between a family. These were letters, correspondence between a family of demonic beings. Uncle Screwtape writes, and he says, My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it's essential to keep the patient in ignorance of our own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We're faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. But on the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. Of course, these articles became a book, a book called The Screwtape Letters, a book I commend to you. Because it's a book that reminds us that we are not alone, that we have a spiritual enemy. But not just that you have a spiritual enemy, you have spiritual help. 
We don't have time to read it, but 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, it's that story of Elijah and his servant, the young man, and they're surrounded by literal earthly horses and, and chariots and army. And the young man despairs, and what does Elisha do? Those of you who remember the story, he says, Lord, give that man, that young man, eyes to see. And then suddenly he sees around Elisha a host of flaming chariots and horses in the defense of God's servants. You have a spiritual enemy. Number two, your spiritual enemy is organized. Don't think of your spiritual enemy in terms of chaos. We are going to talk more about this in the spiritual warfare class that's coming up in a few months. But for now, recognize that your enemy has a strategy. Satan and his followers are not just roaming the earth aimlessly. They are scheming. They are calculating. They are planning. They are executing their assault. And they're doing it in some kind of organized fashion. And Paul seems to lead us in the same direction, Ephesians chapter 6, where he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, some have taken this passage, and they've wanted to focus on what is termed territorial spirits. Again, we'll address that more in the spiritual warfare class. It's certainly clear that there are spirits in this passage that are associated with ancient political powers, the princes of Persia, the princes of Greece. It's not clear if it's a geographical area that they are covering, or simply some kind of earthly power. We need to be careful that we don't just take this verse and build this robust theology of demonic organization from this little that we see in this verses. But what we do need to gather is that your enemy is organized. They are thinking about this. They are thinking about you. And they are intentional. But again, so are the hosts of heaven. So is your Father in heaven. And that's the last subpoint. The primary weapon in this fight is prayer. We began, I began talking about the flu. If you want to think about the flu, think about a virus, prayer is the antibiotics, right? Antibiotics are hard because you've got to keep taking them till the very end. Even, even when you stop feeling bad, you start feeling better. I don't need any more medication. I, I don't feel bad. You don't see anything wrong. And so you stop. And this is a passage that reminds us that even when we can't see what's going on, we've got to pray because prayer on earth connects with cosmic conflict. 2 Corinthians 10, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
Isn't that amazing? It's almost unbelievable. Do we really believe that? I'd like to think that we do. I'd like to think that your elders do as they spent hours in prayer. It wasn't wasted time. It was calling upon the God of the universe and the host of heaven to intervene in your lives, to guard your lives and your hearts. Notice that Daniel is never directed to pray at the demonic powers. Michael never tells him, yeah, go cast out the prince of Persia. Certainly, Daniel's supposed to recognize that they're there, but the fight's the Lord's. Even as he speaks in verse 20 of going back out to fight, this angelic being tells, tells it to Daniel, and he doesn't give him any instructions, but it's almost as if to say, you just keep praying. I've got work to do. God can do it himself. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to use secondary means to accomplish his purposes, to hold the enemy at bay, to break through enemy lines. Prayer on earth connects with cosmic conflict. Well, as we close, I want to focus for just a moment on the friendship of God. Psalm 25, 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. See, this connection with cosmic conflicts, this prayer on earth, is, is Daniel's because of covenant relationship. I want us to notice, I don't want us to miss how Daniel is, is dealt with in this passage by the Lord, by Yahweh. Daniel's a mess. He's distressed about his people. He's undone by this heavenly visitor. He, he's breathless by the reality of what this visitor brings. And, and how does the Lord respond to him? He speaks identity over him. Greatly loved are you, Daniel, in verse 11. He tells him not to fear in verse 12. He touches him not once but twice, and he pronounces over him peace and strength and courage. In other words, the Lord assures Daniel that he is heard, that he is loved, that he is for him. And in this cosmic realm of unseen realities, he even brings to attention the fact that Michael is your prince. Michael is the one tasked with God's people, the nation of Israel. He is your guardian. And how this relates to us this morning is we sit here not as Israelites, but as covenant people. And that friendship, that relationship, that connection through prayer to the cosmic realm and to the Word of God, the commanding Word of the Lord of hosts is ours through Jesus. 
As we were reminded of last week, Colossians 2, 6, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in, by triumphing over them in him. And so when Paul talks about our enemy not being a flesh and blood, but of principalities and powers, what does he say? He says, be strong, not in your own strength, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Daniel 10 is an amazing passage. It peels back the curtain for us for just a moment and encourages us and reminds us that prayer on earth connects us with cosmic conflict. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in your standing. Recognize your enemy. Recognize the battle that is waging and get on your knees through Jesus, the one who has triumphed over it all. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word, for the revelation of that which we cannot see, and we gather this morning as people of faith, people who have never seen with our eyes, seen in the flesh our risen Lord, and yet we believe it nonetheless, and we long for the fullness of that revelation when we will see Him face to face. Until then, as we walk this pilgrimage that You've called us to, May we do so, triumphing, triumphing in the cross, rejoicing in the power that is ours as those in covenant relationship with the Lord, as those who by Your grace, through the work of Your Son, through the condescension and the love of the Father, and call the host of heaven to work for the glory of your name. Oh, Father, as your word has gone out, may it not return to you void, but accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.